Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Off the Pulpit. My name is Eugene. I'm Jason. I'm Thomas. We're three pastors, three friends, conversing on life, culture, and church off the pulpit. Thanks for listening. Uh, quick shout out. I, I mean, everyone knows it's like Spotify wrapped. Um, and yeah, thankful for all. I, I think all three of us are very shocked at how many people have been listening this year. So thank you if you have been listening. Um, very grateful for all of our listeners. Again, we always say this, but we just, if we had zero listeners, we'd continue to do this just for our own sanity. So, any other words for our listeners? Um, Tom, geez. Nobody listens to Pandora, huh? <laughs> you listen to Pandora? Wait, I thought Pandora went extinct. It's still around. That's all I had. <laughs> For Christmas, I think I might gift you a Spotify premium account. I can't believe you listen to Pandora. Jason, remember like Pandora when with the ads. We remember we'd hang out at Tom's and he has like jazz in the background and every ten minutes it's if you enjoy this now, you could purchase Pandora Premium. Anyways, yes, it's on Spotify. Jason, any any other words for our listeners? No, thank you for listening. We weren't on my wife's Spotify rap, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Shout out to Carol. Um, So uh, with that, um, we have a a fun episode uh, lined up for this. I think this is from a conversation Tom and I had a couple weeks ago that I wanted to be able to have with all three of us. But first, as usual, open up our mailbag, a couple of questions. First off, Tom, this is straight for you, my brother. And we get asked this a lot. Um, Do we think Roman Catholics are saved in our own version of what that means. I, I would love your perspective, and then Jason and I can add any side comments. I'm rethinking that these days. What was your I will original? say, th- uh, I think I came more like, you know, with the gospel is different yeah. than Rome. Yeah. So that was just like settled it. But, you know, there. I also come from that thought, mind, that thought where people in the Catholic Church are there genuine believers there because the gospel is there. Hmm. And I think that's really true. And so for sure, I would argue that there are legitimate believers within the Catholic faith, but it's the Catholic faith itself, like a branch of Christianity. I think that one I'm still like kind of chewing on and how to make sense of it. But I will say the question was like, is can people be saved in the Catholic Church? And I would say, yes, I do believe they can. Thoughts on Christian artists using profanity and vulgar, vulgarity in their music? Would love your opinion as a former music, or sorry, as a music, musician. Well, I think first you have to de- you have to define Christian artist. Um, are we talking about an artist who is writing explicitly like Christian music for the church? Or are we talking about artists who profess faith, but they're they're just creating art? You know, um, I think the the yeah, Christian artist is a little bit nebulous there. Um, yeah, I mean, I might I'm uh, hmm, I think there's a tension here because. Um, I do believe that we're called to be um, witnesses and yeah, I'm I'm not really into like the, 
vulgarity or profanity for the sake of it. Um, I'm not in that camp. I do think that, you know, there is, we are, um, we are called to be salt and light. At the same time, I personally don't have like a huge problem with artists um, using profanity if they, if it's an honest expression of, you know, themselves. And, you know, I think that's what art is, you know, and I think, I don't know. I, I think we also dilute a lot of the Psalms that we see in scripture, which actually like in the original language are pretty, some would consider like pretty, um, yeah, like blasphemous um, if you want to think about it. And so I don't know, like I, I think what makes art so like good art, art is actually honesty and authenticity. And I feel like if artists aren't given an opportunity to do that and if someone's gatekeeping you know the way that they express i think it would cease to be pure art so mm. i don't really have an issue with it to be honest uh next question uh interesting question i don't even know if we got asked anything remotely close to this but it's a good question uh, what's a healthy boundary for attending church events AKA to discern what we should go to or when to find rest or when to serve or when not to serve. Great question, especially within our Asian American context. I think often we see our parents just go full blown in and we reap the benefits and also the scars from that. So yeah, I, I, especially for you two as lead pastors that, you know, I'm sure you're aware of all the events going on or maybe even unaware of the multitude of events. What, wisdom would you give a church member and how to set healthy boundaries? Is that even a question to ask at all? I know a nice metaphor to kind of frame it as is, again, the church, it's meant to be at its best, not simply like a group or a friend group, but a family. And so that means you should be connected to your family regularly. The early church, I mean, they gather daily. So that was, and I know it was different times back then, but there is a, a constancy that was there because of that family idea that I think a lot of us lose sight of. At the same time, you know, family can be toxic, so you don't want to overdo cross boundaries per se. And so yeah. you almost have like two extremes where church is life. And I think a lot of the first gen Asians treat it that way. And when you treat church as life, you know, you have only, the only social community you have is believers. You have no contact with your neighbors or the outside world. And then there's the other extreme where church is not life. Church is just a small part of your life where at most you'll go to a Sunday worship gathering whenever you're free. And I don't know, I just think there's something wrong with that picture as well. And so I think the metaphor of like family where you gather regularly when the church calls to gather, Sunday being the main arena where you do that, but also never the church gathers together for intentional reasons. I think you just got to really make sure, like, is this something that you can go to? Is it a good balance with your family life and with your work life, but enough where you feel in contact and connection with your church community? So to me, it's more, I'm not sure if I have a hard, fast rule, but they're just extremes, but also this metaphor of family of how you stay connected with them. I think that's really helpful. I think on the flip side, and I think this is something Jay and I at my church have thought about a lot, is also... If you are a leader or a pastor listening, how can you plan a church calendar that's sustainable and healthy for your people? Because, you know, I think there is this 
it's a fine line, right? But I do think there's this burden of, oh, I have to keep the church busy because this is my work. And, you know, I just have to do a lot of these events. But sometimes you don't know the more events you put out, the more pressure you might put on your church people and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think one thing Jay's been good at is trying to figure out what's a healthy rhythm for our people, especially our context is very weird in the Bay Area or very unique. So I, I you know, I think that's been helpful too, because I think before it was almost impossible to set a boundary because the family was run almost like a dictatorship, at least from what I've seen in first-gen churches. So that's my only two cents. Yeah, and to add to that, I would say not only, I think, is it important to set a healthy rhythm, I think it's important to create a structure that allows for rest. Um, so, for example, you know, something that we noticed um, back in the day, like, our community group system used to be like um, you, you join a group and that group is together forever, like indefinitely, you know. And one of the things we realized was that that structure um, was burning out a lot of leaders because one, that structure was basically um, creating a culture in which like you were getting a lot of non-committal people, first of all, because it was like, if it's, if something is indefinite, it's like very hard to stay committed to it forever. But then two, a lot of leaders were feeling guilty for ever leaving these groups or like taking a break because they felt like they were abandoning their group and the group was now going to fall apart. And so we almost needed to like save people from themselves and create a structure in which like every year we do a reshuffle of our community groups. And part of that is to give leaders a clear off ramp if they need to take a break. You know, they don't feel like they're abandoning their group because they know that that group is going to be reshuffled anyways. And so I'm not saying that there is a one size fits all structure, but I do think as pastors, one of our responsibilities is to think through how are maybe our current structures potentially feeding like especially in the Asian American church, potentially feeding our like certain um, cultural inclinations, you know, toward like just going until we burn out or, you know, never asking for breaks, you know, and we also have like that beat the body mentality where like you're holier if you just keep grinding. And so like, you know, even I, I've heard of churches um, create policies around like how many ministries a person is allowed to serve in. You know, and it's like even when people are like, oh, no, I can do it. I can do like I can juggle three or four ministries. They'll be like, no, we don't want to do that because we're trying to preserve your like long term spiritual, emotional health. And so I do think some of the onus is on the leaders because I don't always feel like people understand that that's how they're wired and that's how, you know, how they're inclined. So there's last thing on my there's a great article. Uh, in mereorthodoxy.com called The Four Quadrants of Church Life in the Gray Zone, which is really helpful with what just Jason talked about. And basically, it's the whole idea of there's like a grid. I'll explain it really quickly, but you can read it. There's a grid. One line, the x-axis is risk and low risk, so high risk, low risk. The other is low time, time commitment, high time commitment. And basically, what the article is promoting is, hey, do things that require a lot of time, a lot of change, or no time and no change for your church people. Because everything else in the other categories is just a waste of time. Like for some small group, it's high time commitment, 
but you meet every weekend like you discuss a sermon there's no life change so like you're burning your people out for no reason so maybe shifting what small groups do but anyways it's a great article so if you're a leader look that up um last question this is a we've answered this kind of um I, be, when when the gaza conflict happened we gave our initial thoughts but one question we got and several that kind of relate to this but i thought this question wrapped it up pretty well i have both jewish and palestinian friends in my life what is what's some advice on how to navigate these relationships and opinions uh, over the conflict in gaza and palestine uh, what are ways we can sympathize with each set of friends without hurting the other party or maintaining a sense of truth. So we've discussed this offline, I think the three of us, but yeah, I, just, I mean, it's a difficult question because I think for all three of us, I can speak, I think pretty honestly that we're still processing this too. But yeah, any, any, any very quick advice to give this question to this listener? I know I've been thinking about this for a long time and my main thing, feeling I have for anybody is just to be careful playing the partisan game. It's like creeping in like crazy. Like if you're, if you're for the oppressed, like you're gonna be pro-Palestine. If you're about like justice or what, you know, the actuality of the events that happened, you're like pro-Israel. And it's like, dude, like, don't be so simplistic like that. Like if the people who are super like oppressor, oppressive, they're gonna be pro-Palestine. The people who are pro-justice, they're gonna be Israel. And it's like, well, there's a lot more nuance that's there. And that's been one thing that's been really discouraging, especially on social media, is seeing these hot takes that are super quick, very dismissive of the other side. I think there's like a lot of clear things to establish, in my opinion. Like it's just really clear that Hamas is bad news. It's really clear that Palestine, they're a country that went through a lot of suffering. Like there's just like clear things that are there, but you could hold both things in tension to be true. And I think when we make like these sweeping statements, it's just really, uh, it's really causing both sides to miss each other in ways they don't have to. So I just say avoid the partisan game because that's what's all over social media right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think it's, that's actually the, that's our natural inclination, I think, is to want to make one side the good guy and believe that they are all good and make the other side the bad guy and believe that they are all evil. And like nothing in life works that way. Um, you know, hu human beings are complex, issues are complex. And, and I don't think that calling an issue complex is a cop-out. I think when you call an issue complex and then you say, I'm gonna completely disengage and not gonna think about it at all, I think that can be a cop-out. But I think understanding that these are extremely complex issues, but I think finding a way to place at the forefront um, of everything that we do, like um, the importance of human dignity, right? So even like as you interact with your friends, I think even the way that we interact with our Jewish friends and our Palestinian friends, I think there's a way we can interact with them where we're like, we're trying to get the talking points from them or we're trying to kind of exploit them in some ways so that we can get what we need to do, you know, to feel better about ourselves. I think that's kind of when it becomes extremely harmful. But I think like, especially if you have both um, Jewish friends and Palestinian friends, understanding that both sides are hurting right now, understanding that both sides are trying to make sense of it 
you know, when you think about the history of is like history of the Jewish people, like it's very like you have to understand when October 7th happened for them, it wasn't just October 7th. It was like this is a people who for their entire lives have heard only about the ways that their people have been oppressed and traumatized. You know, like you think about how much we talk about the Holocaust growing up and things like that. And so that entire narrative is tied into like how they're responding to this. Then you talk about to our Palestinian friends who like for their entire lives, they've been labeled as the terrorists and the like the bad guys and, you know, and the people in the movies that are like, you know, evil. And then something like this happens. They're trying to process all of this. So understanding both sides are hurting and continuing to like move away from the partisan game and focus far more on the people game, I think is the way to go. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I would say that's, that's the biggest thing um, that I think would be important in this situation. Like the, the, the um, analogy that really comes to mind for me is the LA riots, to be honest. Um, you know, and I think for Asian Americans, this, this may be helpful. And one of my really good friends kind of brought this up that the complexity of what's happening in Israel, Palestine, um, I mean, it's not a, obviously it's not a direct correlation, but in many ways you could make an analogy with kind of the complexity of the relationship between Korean America or Koreans and blacks, you know, and in the sense of like both parties have experienced marginalization and in different and in different occasions have felt like um you know like they like they were the sufferer they were the suffering ones and then you get something like the riots that kind of pit these two um like minority groups against each other and there's a whole slew of complexity that comes out of that and it's a very like nuanced relationship and that's why when things happened um with racial justice like a lot of Korean Americans that I was talking to, they they didn't know exactly how to react to those things because it's like, ooh, like, you know, for a long time, a lot of Asian Americans aligned with with the whites, you know, because that was the way to survive. In some scenarios, we aligned with people of color. But now you have this situation, you have certain situations where like that area is gray, where you feel pitted against each other. And it's like, in those situations, it was very easy to um, like go with the one side is good and one side is evil. But like, I think two things can be true at once, you know, that both both groups have at, at some point experienced some level of marginalization. Both groups have suffered a lot in this country, you know, like um, both groups like are carrying a lot of trauma and hurt. And so like, what is the way forward in situations like that and i think when when i thought about it like that it helped me un helped me at least um like look at what was happening with israel and palestine through a different lens and maybe a more personal lens i would only say three things one mark series is coming on in february so i'm sure he'll help us a lot i mean he does a lot of the the background research so i'm very curious to what he says two in light of that, I realized like I just need to learn more about the history, um, and not to use TikTok to learn or read Instagram. Uh, out of all the, you know, even me saying this might trigger people. 
Hillary Clinton did a great eight minute uh, video, I think on The View, but it's just on Twitter if you just search it. She does a really good job of encapsulating the messy history between Israel and Palestine and what led to now. So I, w- I would just mention that. And lastly, like, man, like, just realize, like, it's okay to not have a solid opinion because no one really does. There's so much cognitive dissonance happening when you look at the spec. Like, even in the left, it's really split. You get the hardline Democrats, like, backing Israel, but far left not. On the right, same thing. Like, most of them are backing Israel, but a lot of these far right guys aren't. And I remember, like, seeing, like, black Hebrew Israelites fighting with, like, LGBTQ pro Hamas supporters on the streets. And I was like, this is the the level of cognitive dissonance that we've reached so just it's okay not to have like a solid opinion yet um and just continue to learn so that that's the only thing i would add um so yeah just wait for mark sayers um he's coming february so hopefully we'll ask him about that but that's the mailbag thanks for asking all those questions um but today what we wanted to spend the bulk of the episode talking about is kind of we've already talked about this a lot uh maybe with other episodes but even kind of hinting at it um, but even the creation of this podcast as a whole kind of encapsulates this episode of feeling very tribeless as Asian American, more specifically Korean American churches in California. Uh, Tom and I had a really long conversation a couple weeks ago in Thanksgiving about this. Um, we've all already shared kind of um, about this. So, yeah, I wanted to just discuss that of like what where three of us are at now, where we're at together and where we see maybe the future for us. Um, we're, we're, and I want to even ask us all three, like we're going to use terms and orgs. We're going to use like insider baseball language, but I think it will be helpful for our listeners, especially if you don't know these words, we'll try our best to like, what is the SBC? What is the TGC? What is JMAC? What's the Bible church? So we'll try our best to define all that. But um, I guess one thing I wanted to do for all three of us was, kind of go through a brief timeline of our own journey in tribes. Um, Like, you know, we've all, all of us are in a tribe, uh, a particular evangelical tribe, whether we like it or not. So I I thought it'd be really interesting just to kind of like go through each of our own journeys from Christian to going into ministry and especially with you two being lead pastors, right? So um, Tom, maybe you can go first of just giving a brief timeline of your, I guess almost a testimony, but just in a tribal form of, you know, going through each group and where you're at now. Yeah, I I mean, I grew up Roman Catholic, so that was background all the way to end of college. And then, you know, I kind of experienced that small Asian church. I guess you could call that a tribe. It's, yep. like, it's like the the wildlings in Game of Thrones, just like <laughs> all over the place, right? Just running together, doing trying to survive. Yeah. And then when I became a Christian, and you know, try to really take my faith seriously. That's when I got first introduced to the the JMAC, the John MacArthur Tribe. Uh, that was like my first introduction to like what Protestant Christianity is. And the interesting about that stage was like this is like this is Christianity. Read the MacArthur Study Bible. Make sure like verse by verse preaching. This is it's like uh, Christian piety. Like that was just kind of the way it was introduced to me. So I remember, like, I listened to, like, everything on Grace to You. I listened to R.C. Sproul a lot. I listened to John Piper. So those guys were, like, my kind of informal popes that were there. Um, And then I remember that was kind of the way I practiced Christianity for many years. And then Keller changed everything. When I met Tim Keller and I got introduced to his ministry, 
that's when I was like, oh, this is really different. Because I think that first stage that I was in, it was very much like us against the world and like the world's evil and secular. Yeah. The church is like the the hope of the world type of thing. And then Keller was almost like this bridge of like engaging the world and really being salt and light and not running away, but coming into it. And so I remember Keller's engage, uh, engaging ministry was something that was a radical shift for me. And I remember the idea of being missional and the idea of like Christ-centeredness and the idea of reformed theology that became really huge for me as well. So it's interesting. I became probably more reformed through Keller than through like my previous years um, in the Baptistic tribe. And so I remember like that kind of became my, my, my season. TGC was really big as well. Um, Gospel Coalition, the whole Gospel Center movement, Mark Driscoll, all, all that crowd. I became a Reformed Baptist during that time period as well. And I remember like even SBC was something I was like thinking about. Should I join that network and so forth? And then like when stuff went down, like in church stuff, I remember like I was really down with like, dude, like it doesn't matter unless your church is healthy. So I became all about like healthy churches and making sure that we strive to be long lasting and sufficient. And so I remember like that's where Nine Marks became a big thing. Mark Dever and guys who are kind of more low key. That's where we went like Harbor Network because they're all about like being healthy churches as well. And so those are kind of some of the main figures that I ran into. And then I remember it was probably when we started this pod where all of that kind of like something happened where I was like, man, I feel like God's like in a box for me and all the people. And actually everything kind of shook for me where I would meet people talking about different things. And I feel like my tribe didn't have good answers to it. Like the racial justice stuff. I feel like my tribe had like very poor answers. Spiritual abuse, very poor answers. Uh, the idea of like women and their place in the church. Again, I've said it very explicitly, I'm a complementarian, but the way my tribe was talking about it, I just was really turned off. And so I remember that's where like different voices started to becoming appealing to me. And it wasn't like I was leaving my reformed theology because I still feel like I'm very reformed, but that's where like this kingdom mindset kind of became bigger for me. And so that's kind of my journey. And one thing I'm actually thankful for is I look back at that, not thinking like, dude, that was like such a primitive version of like my Christian faith. I'm actually really thankful for each of those voices in each stage of my Christian faith, because I feel like it was very formative in a very good way. And I feel like now um, still set in my theology and my orthodoxy, but I'm also very different in my orthopraxy, if that makes sense. Hmm. So yeah, that's kind of like where I'm at. Great, great. Jason? Um, actually, my, my story isn't so different. Um, grew up in the Korean immigrant church and went to a few different churches, all different denominations, but I feel like all Korean immigrant churches are essentially the same church. Um, it doesn't matter what denomination you're in. Everyone does morning prayer. Everyone is like slightly Pentecostal charismatic. Um, and so that was my upbringing. And, um, then when I went to college, um, I never really had a, cause I went to college on the East coast. I don't know that J Mac was as big on the East coast. So, um, never really had like a huge J Mac phase, but I did have a big John Piper phase, you know, that was like desiring God, Christian hedonism, you know, like the idea that like God is better, you know, that like pursuing pleasure is to pursue God and that is our highest good, 
you know, and the, like the idea of the bigness of God, the glory of God, that was, you know, John Piper like was huge on that. And that like had such an impact on me as a college student, you know, um, and then, um, discovering Keller was like probably the single most, um, important, like shift for me because the thing with Piper, which was great, you know, it was like the bigness of God, but like, it still wasn't like, um, there, there was still a disconnect. Like it, like God was just so big and out there. And Keller was the first person that I would listen to. And he just brought me Jesus, like every sermon, every text, um, like, um, like he brought me, like, it, it felt like, like, that's when it like truly felt like, oh, this is good news to me, you know, like, um, and the way that he pre he found Jesus in every passage in scripture was so beautiful and he made the gospel so beautiful. And um, so like that was probably, that has had the, mo the most lasting impact on my life, I would say. So I, I don't, I would not say that I ever grew out of um, Keller in any way. Um, I, uh, during that time I was at predominantly PCA churches. Um, so, uh, you know, that was my background. So I, I learned under PCA pastors. Um, so I, I would consider myself very reformed, then got deep into the young, restless and reform movement as well with Driscoll and Chandler and, and mm. all those guys. And, um, yeah, like I, 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 w I was like, a pretty like staunch in my twenties, I, I was a pretty staunch Calvinist in the way, like I was, you know, I would have arguments with people and I loved like, um, you know, debating with people about this stuff. And I felt way more like sure of my theological stances and beliefs. And then you debated people. Okay. They were friendly debates, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, they probably were like, "Oh, he debated me." <laughs> like he just agreed with me the whole time. Um, and then, yeah, and then I, th I think similarly, um, things started happening. I think 2020 was like the culmination of all of that. But even before that, you know, mm -hmm. even um, I was starting to see like areas in which, like, the way that I understood my faith was not like. It, it was not really speaking to those areas, you know, mm -hmm. uh, like, yeah, on the issues of justice, um, like anytime the, the conversation moved from like systematic theology to like practical theology, all of a sudden I felt like I didn't have anything to talk about anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like that really, you know, I really went searching for more and around that time, um, was I was starting to get like, you know, into Scott McKnight stuff, the King Jesus gospel, you know, Bible project was coming out with a lot of their material on like, you know, um, just expanding my, it wasn't, I was not growing out of like the reformed gospel per se, like justification by faith atonement. But I was realizing that maybe the gospel was that plus something way bigger, you know, that it was about all of creation being redeemed and God making all things new. Um, and it like, it got me really excited and it 
like that was the first time I was like, oh, this idea even of like, what does um, bringing heaven to bear on earth like really look like? And what does a faith look like that's not motivated by like, where am I going to go after I die? But it's like really motivated by like joining God in the work of redemption and renewal that he's doing like right now in our midst. And, um, and so, yeah, that like opened me up to a, a whole new world, which I think through that, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the exact, like how the dots connected, but through that world, I think I got into the John Mark Comer's, you know, and the, like the John Tyson's, like I started getting more into the spiritual formation, you know, the Dallas Willard's, you know, the N.T. Wright's, the Eugene Peterson's, like, you know, I, that opened me up to a, a completely new swath of theologians um, that, like, I think I was also maybe going through a season in my life where, like, I needed a lot of, like, emotional, spiritual healing and, uh, and like, you know, connecting back to the practices and, like, you know, things like silence and solitude and rediscovering prayer and like fasting and these kinds of things were so life-giving to me. Um, so like I kind of went there. And so I think that's probably the most recent. I mean, we've talked about kind of like the formation tribe and things like that. I wouldn't say I've grown out of that tribe, but definitely like the sheen of it is is not as like, I think like a year ago, I was like, this is the, this is the future and this is where all of Christianity <laughs> is going. And I think more I'm able to see it as more like, oh, this is what's really important, I think, movement that happened in the church that I think was getting people to think in very different ways. Um, and so now I'm, I'm probably some combination of all of those things trying to figure out like a way, like how to take all of these things in a way forward. And, you know, it's interesting, like I say this in my, in our, um, like intro to citizens course, it's that like when we first launched as citizens, one of the things I realized going back to what Tom said, it was so much more important now for me to, to cultivate a healthy culture and a healthy church than to try to be right on every secondary tertiary doctrinal issue. And I say like, I, 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 believe doctrine is really important and i believe that like i believe but i think that there's been potentially an a complete like over emphasis on like right thinking and not enough emphasis on like um the way we live together in community and i always say like every church has a professed theology like they all have a statement mm -hmm. of beliefs that this is what they believe, but every church also has a functional theology, like how they actually like operate as a community. And a lot of times those things don't align. So it's like, how do we define ourselves? Um, like not so much doctrinally, like I'm in this tribe or we are this versus like define ourselves by our values. And this is the way we're going to live out the gospel um, in community. And so I think I'm there right now and I have a little bit of all of that in me and I'm sure people will be, will probably hear that um, in the way that I talk, but yeah. Uh -huh. so. Yeah. 
Um, really quickly, I'm very similar to, well, more Jason because I I grew up in a Korean Baptist church, immigrant church. But it's, it's Jason's right. All those churches are the same, right? Um, so grew up that. Noticed it was like, oh, this this is weird. So that was the first thing I noticed in that tribe. Uh, I moved into the charismatic Korean um, splinter of that. It was very Bethel-esque uh, at that time. And that was more out of not choice, but just the, I was on a praise team that traveled and then got placed in that. That was a wild time. That was like a time where I was like, I don't want to be a part of this tribe, but I'm just here because my friends are here. So that was a very interesting ride. I get to college and I'm just kind of like, I don't, I don't like, I'm kind of losing faith in the church. Uh, and then, um, I remember a combination, I, I think, you know, Tom was part of the college ministry I was part of, but also it was either him or just people just, uh, introduced me to Tim Keller. I remember reading King's Cross, which I think now is called Jesus the King, which is, uh, Tim Keller's book on the book of uh, the gospel of Mark that changed everything for me. Um, it just was like the first time the gospel finally got connected. So I, I, I just like dove head in that like, oh, I want to be everything Keller is. So I got, uh, you know, mid-college and post-college, I got really into these PCA guys like Rankin Wilborn, um, uh, Scott Sauls, like I, anyone that was like Keller touched, I was like, oh, I just, I, I got to listen to their preaching. But, you know, they, they were all like just imitations of Keller too. So I was like, oh, this is whatever. From that, um, I find out that Keller is involved in TGC. So I joined TGC, or not, I, sorry, I just like, I start like really getting into TGC. And, you know, I, I wrote for them too for a little bit before. And I remember I was at a TGC conference and it was the first time where like the early TGC conferences was like Comic Con for like Korean American pastors where it was like you're nerding out, you see your heroes and you're like, oh, these are my people. Um, so that was that. And then like even pre-2020, but like leading into like 2017, 2018, you just kind of realize like, oh, I thought TGC liked Keller, but it seems like a lot of these guys don't like Keller. And I was like, I was thrown in for a loop because I was like, I really like Kevin DeYoung. And then I realized like, oh, like it's not this big, happy family that I thought it was. So those are the cracks that started appearing in TGC and that type of like, you know, gospel centric world. So I just became very like, oh, like they're, they're, they're not as unified as I thought. And it became very clear. 2020 happened just as these guys mentioned. Same thing. I was just like, oh, I, I don't know. And then from there, I'm just lost. 2020 happens, I get even more lost because like everything TGC writes about race, I'm just like, I don't think this is this is it, uh, my brothers and sisters. So from there, I go to Sea Rock, which is a cohort that John Mark Comer leads with John Tyson, and that was like a spring of well, uh, like just fresh water being poured into my face. And I was like, Jason, like in 2021, 2022, and Jason and Tom probably know this. I was like, dude, this is like, I found the real Christian faith. It's, it's in the early church fathers and mothers and the desert mothers and all this stuff, you know, I'm like, this is it. And it's funny because in seminary, I used to bag on this stuff so much too. Right. Um, but I would say to end, like, I think this year I'm realizing like, you guys correct me if I'm wrong. I felt like every tribe I'm a part of, there's a moment where, you know, in the Truman show where you realize like, where he realizes like, oh, everyone's staring at me a little differently. And it's like, this isn't home. There's always been a moment where I'm like, ah, this ain't it either. So from there, I'm just like, ah, I don't know 
what tribe I'm in, and I, I've Tom made a really good point. All the stuff before has been really helpful, but now I'm just like, what do we do? It almost seems like we are very tribalist, which is the the premise of today's episode. So from there, I have a lot of questions. We'll see where this goes. One before we get into like where we're at, where we're gonna go. Why do tribes matter? I think a lot of people listening will be like, especially those that don't know this world, they're probably like, oh, like, like, hey, I thought the church was just, you know, you just read the Bible, the Spirit speaks, and, you know, you know, we don't need tribes, we just need Jesus. So I guess for us, like, we're going to talk about this a lot, but really quickly, do tribes matter? Do these, like, networks matter? Do these denominations matter? Um, and if so, why? If, if not, why not? I'm very curious to, to hear all three of us speak on that. I know, I know why I think we want a tribe. It's like very primitive. It's to feel safe. Mm. Mm. Like nobody wants to feel like they're the only one who believes in this thing, especially something like as high stakes as salvation and God. And so when you have a group of people you respect, believe in the same thing, it just makes you feel secure and it makes you feel like you're part of the right team. And so I think there's like this primitive need to be in that group of people who have it right. And actually, I really think a lot of people, they became PCA, not because they're PCA, but it's like what you said, like because of Keller. People yeah. our age, at least, like yeah, they, 100%. I'm pretty sure it wasn't because of their Reformed Fathers that they got super convicted. Their their gateway drug was Keller. And I think we felt safe when someone as respectable as a guy like him believed in something and we could attach ourselves to that. So I think that's like this primitive need to join a tribe. I think in... um like in in the worst way i think yeah sometimes like um it is a primitive need for safety and and also like power you know um survival of the fittest like you always want to be like the ones in power and, and that's one way to um get power you know by forming tribes but i do think in the best way um, I think, yeah, like, it, you know, it's like this work and faith can be like a really lonely journey, you know, and you're really wrestling with some big questions and finding a community of people that are kind of wrestling in the same way and maybe are like on that same wavelength. I think there is like a core need there for some type of community that I think is like good. And I think it's, you know, it's speaking to like a real human desire. Um, you know, I'm still torn on like um, how important denominations and things like that are. But I did once hear like somebody talk about, you know, they basically said like a lot of people t- see like all the different tribes and all the different denominations and networks as a sign of so much disunity in the church. And this person kind of was making the argument that like um, he saw it as actually being a lot of unity uh, as as an effort toward unity because it was kind of like understanding that we all love Jesus and we all love the word of God and we're all interpreting certain things in different ways. And like we're not we're not ready to call you like not a not a Christian, but maybe we can create these smaller networks where like you know, we, we are maintaining the broader unity of the church while kind of like still being able to, 
um, be with people and, and journey with people who are kind of on the same page as us. I think probably being sinful, broken human beings, we've really messed that up. Um, where I think a lot of times people do look at other denominations and say, you're not Orthodox or you're not even like, you shouldn't even be called Christian. And we've actually used it as a way to draw lines in the sand yeah. rather than create unity in the broader church body. But I do think in, in like, I can see it the other way too, that sometimes that these things were often efforts to maintain actually the unity of the church. I've realized when people say you're not orthodox in 2023, it just means you're not in my tribe, right? Like that's, I mean, um, Preston Sprinkle's going through that right now where he's like accused of being a, a heretic. But anyway, sorry, I'm using a lot of insider language. Um, if you're listening and you haven't checked out yet and you're not a pastor or a leader, you're like wondering like, why does it even matter? I, I would say this, it does matter because your leader, your pastor is in a tribe, whether they know it or not, or they like it or not, like, there is an influence that they have or he or she has had uh, through the books, through the resources, through the preaching that he or she has heard. Even if you say, I'm not in a tribe, like, that's a tribe, right? <laughs> and you can interpret which tribe that is, whatever, whatever you want to say. Um, I want to kind of shift to like, okay, we're like, I guess this is almost like an update episode for some of our listeners. Like, where are we right now in terms of our own guidance and, like, direction? Like, what, where do we find ministry wisdom from? Like, wh what's helpful for you guys? And is there anyone out there that you feel, like, has been really helpful for your ministry, especially in our churches? I'm very curious. I mean, I think what the three of us have in common when it comes to the guys we mentioned is that everyone we mentioned was white, you know? <laughs> And, and so like, I think it's like crazy to me that like for basically like, I am, I am a son of Korean immigrants. Like I'm only second generation Korean American. And like basically 40 years of my spiritual formation, like, like in terms, like not in terms of like my actual mentors and pastors, but like the people that I've read and the people that have like shaped my theology and who have shaped the theology of my pastors and mentors, yeah. um, we're all white, you know? And so I think I am in a, a season where I'm like looking much more for, um, like, um, not, I'm not like not reading like white theologians, but I'm I'm really looking to expand my um, library and my like I'm trying to expand my yeah just um, like broaden my perspective by reading um, theologians of color you know uh, what and I think even and it's not even like that they're talking about Asian issues or black issues. Um, but just because of their experience, which is so unique in their, like in their skin, um, like it, the way they talk about the Bible and the way they interpret and um, certain passages and help me to understand like my place in, you know, like my identity has been so helpful. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I talk about him all the time, but like Daniel Lee, who's a member of our church, he's written several books. 
like just having him be a part of our community and learning from him and reading his material like that in and of itself has been such a huge benefit um to my formation and 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 my leadership as a pastor um that i think i am in a stage where i am trying to make that shift a little bit so i think it's right now i i would say it's less about like finding someone that fits a certain theological mold and more about broadening my like what i'm reading like and who i'm reading i think that's been big for me these days yeah, I feel like a little bit different, but kind of similar theme. I think I'm trying to find how to relate with God most intimately, and I don't mind like which voices I hear that from. Mm. Um, again, I'm still, my orthodoxy has not changed at all. And I think because I'm so confident in my orthodoxy, I don't mind reading people who are outside of my tribe. And I don't find myself self-conscious about it. I don't worry about I'm going to change and they're going to influence me. If my orthodoxy is like set the way I think it is, why would I be afraid of reading someone who's different than me? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of guys, that's like almost like their feeling. But I, I find those guys to be so boring. Like I, when I talk to guys and, <laughs> and they're answering all these questions, like, dude, you sound just like Mark Dever. You sound just like John MacArthur. Like everything you're about to say about any theological question, I know who's answering. It's not you. It's John MacArthur or it's Tim Keller who's answering this. And again, that's totally fine if that's the stage that you're in, but I could just tell that's the main voices you're hearing from. And I just don't know if God and the kingdom operates that way. I'm not saying those are wrong voices, but if that's the only voice that you're parroting, I just think you have a very limited version of who God is. And so I know one analogy I've been using, I'm not sure if it's a perfect analogy, but it's almost like um, you know, back in the Kung Fu days, everyone thought like their style of Kung Fu was like the best. But then when you actually saw the best fighters, it was the the guys who were MMA fighters. Like what works and like, you know, you're always gonna have a base, like you're a boxer or you're a jujitsu fighter or you're Muay Thai. But what the brilliance of like Bruce Lee and when they introduce different forms is you get those forms and you mix it into your bag and you just like own everybody. And you know, when that first happened, people thought that was super controversial. But dude, the reality is like, man, there's more about fighting than just this one form that you're doing. doesn't mean your form is wrong. And I find that to be, again, this it could, like, I know this could sound kind of strange, but that's almost like I feel sometimes what the faith is like, where God is huge and expansive. And again, I think my tribe is right. Like I think in many ways the Reformed tribe got it right, but that makes me all the more confident to learn from the charismatic tribes, to learn from the non-Reformed people, to learn from the Eastern people. Oh, that's how your view of God like I read recently Richard Rohr's book, super weird book. I told I told you to like you guys, like that book was really weird. But out of like 90% of it, I probably would dismiss, but there's like 10% that was like gold. And I was like, oh, that was really good. And I actually feel I'm finding myself because I'm confident in my orthodoxy to just like learn from different people. And not everyone's ready for that, but that's kind of the stage I'm in. Hmm. Now, you know, kung, did you, you've seen those Kung Fu masters get like, destroyed what <laughs> they think this this is the way and it's like you know yes <laughs> like reality kind of hits you, you know? let me introduce you to grappling and, um yeah no it's funny because i know i've known tom for so long like i think even if you told if tom told himself 10 years ago that like hey i'd be quoting richard Rohr on instagram i think tom would have been like no way bro <laughs> is he but, a reformed baptist <laughs> No, but you did it. You did it. Um, yeah, no, that that's helpful. Um, 
shout out to Daniel Lee too. Uh, Jay, Jay's in a cohort with him, and that's been really helpful. Mm. I think he he's really like inspired Jay to like think more about this episode and this question we're having. I think Mark Sayers is one guy where I'm like, you know, mm. if he starts something, I'll feel comfortable being there for however long. But um, yeah, I mean, I will. Uh, and going and to speak to Mark Sayers, I think now I'm. Again, like we don't know the inner life of every person we have on yeah. and we don't know what's really going on behind behind the curtain, but nowadays I'm much more like in like cognizant and impressed by a way a person embodies Jesus in their life than I am about their like theological prowess, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like um and Mark Sayers is just a perfect example of it, you know, yeah. like not that I, I, I care about what he what he believes in his theology. But when we had him on, honestly, like I was so like um, I was so like moved by who he was as a man that um, like everything else was secondary, you know, yeah. and, I, and I think like the past five years have shown us that like there isn't really a theological tribe that can claim their scandal free, right? Like you had Carl Lentz to Ravi Zacharias, you know, like you have the PCA, you have the SBC, like every, you realize that like, there isn't like a theology that essentially like frees a tribe from like moral failure yeah. or like people, um, you know, not living like Christ. And so now I'm much more like drawn to pastors and leaders who to me like exude um, like the fruit of the spirit and exude Christ. Dude, 100%. Mark Sayers was like a game changer for me too because I remember when I met him, I'm like, this guy is way more encouraging, way nicer, way godlier than like so many reformed famous people I met. And that kind of made me question myself like <laughs> Like, what's going on? Like, you know what I mean? It made you, like, wonder, like, well, again, I'm not supposed to agree with this guy on a lot of things, but why does he feel way more Jesus-y than so many people who had the right doctrine? And yes. that kind of caused, like, a little bit of a malfunction, I think, in my systematics. He's the only guest that stayed on to pray for us. Like, right? Like, And we've mm -hmm. had a lot of people on. Like, And that that was pretty wild the more I think about it. And, um, and, and, and we had him on, I mean, not that we're like big, but we had him on like when we had nobody <laughs> noteworthy ever on the pod. Yeah, yeah. And he was probably like our first kind of like really famous guest, you know? Yeah. yeah. And our favorite guest. I think and we our can favorite comfortably guest. say that. Um, yeah, no, that's helpful. So <clears throat> I think one question I want to pivot to now is... So, you know, like, where where are we at now in terms of our tribe? Like, is is it just, you know, Tom and I had a really long conversation. And, I was, and I'll kind of share my own thoughts I told him um, later on in this episode. But, yeah, like, I, I feel all of us feel the same. We're just kind of like, we have that Truman Show moment where, like, this isn't what we thought it was. And we're all kind of, like, even with John Mark Comer. And all of this stuff is really good. The Formation Tribe is really good. But just realizing, at least I, I think speaking for me, more me and Jason, it's just like, it's not the solution. So is it just like, hey, we're just going to do our own thing. 
He said, we're going to start something. I'm very curious what you guys think um, at our current tribal state. I know when it comes to like what tribe we're in, that's why I'm excited to have um, in the future Karen Pryor join us. Like she wrote an article and her like main thing is you, you can't change institutions. Like don't mm. think you're going to go into any type of institution and change them. You have to simply accept them for who they are, what they aren't, and choose to enter into that relationship. And so if that's the case, I'm like, yeah, I might be good then because you know, there's not really at this stage of my life, like what institution do I really want to align myself to? Uh, that's why at this stage right now, I'm definitely more interested in like partnerships and friendships with people who I just resonate with. And I'd love to have like a group of people where there is some type of just friendship-based type of relationship. And even deeper than that, where churches could partner together and I'm actually hopeful that there can be future institutions and networks that can thrive together in that way. Um, I'm not skeptical that won't happen, but I don't see too many that are promising yet. Um, again, I, I'm part. Of, I'm already part of a network. I'm part of Harbor Network, and they're they're really good to me. Like I think shout out to Harbor, super supportive. Really appreciate them. The, the only problem is they're very East Coast centric, so they don't really have a strong presence in the West Coast. Hmm. Um, but yeah, again, I'm not letting go of the idea that there can't be any type of institution or tribe to be connected to is just um, the prospects of it look a little bit hazy, uh, but I would long for that. Hmm. I do feel like we are maybe, um, and this is maybe the hopeful side of me, potentially in the beginning stages of like forging our own identity. Um, as Asian American pastors and even saying that is like feels so weird because I feel like like that was never we were never that you know we were always aligning ourselves with some other group but I wonder if um like we're in this interesting moment when yeah, like when I think um, more Asian American leaders are being empowered to lead. And I wonder if there is, I don't want to call it a tribe, but maybe a network of relationships and um, partnerships that are, are that are forging into its own, into a completely new thing. You know, like I, I think about like even um, with me, like my relationship with music, like so much of my early stages was just like mimicking my heroes and like I was just basically parroting everything they did. And then like over time, as I kind of like got influenced by different artists from completely different genres of music, you know, I was trying to put all that stuff together and it was probably sounding really like strange at first. But there came a point where like it then became just like that was my sound and that was who I was you know, for better or for worse. And it was kind of like a convergence of all of these things into its own new thing. And I wonder if like there is something like that happening um, in our community as well. Like the fact that like the three of us had such similar stories and we like, you know, like we didn't even know each other until like, you know, as as in our younger days, like, makes me think there are so many people in the same boat, you know, that grew up with all these, a mixture of things 
and we were kind of going with the tide wherever kind of like the um wherever the current was heading and i wonder if now we're all in this moment of like maybe we need to forge something new um yeah whatever that may look like all of our stories were so trinitarian it's like god the father macarthur piper <laughs> then jesus through tim keller and now the spirit of god the holy spirit through the spiritual formation camp very true maybe we just gotta use that all up um yeah i mean i told tom this but you know i think even again i've known tom for a while jason a little more recently but even like again 10 years ago if i was like hey tom like you're gonna do a podcast with this egalitarian pastor in la <laughs> and that's gonna be the closest semblance always bring this up <laughs> i mean i'm just saying like hey i i i have no qualm in this fight right but I'm just saying, like, even for that to happen is, like, I think the sign of our times that we, I, I like, honestly, 10 years ago, like, I don't think we would do this podcast because it's just, like, mm -hmm. it'd be, like, well, you know, obviously, Jason changed a lot, too, but it would be, like, oh, like, he's egalitarian or, like, oh, he's complementarian. They're not in our tribe. But I think even us doing this is, like, the steps of something, you know? And I, and I told Tom this, too, like, I think within our this is a, i'm speaking to a very small circle of people right but i think a lot of people also look to tom and even you jason for some of that guidance like i you know when tom used to do his blog i mean it was some crazy articles which were which were great right when tom penned his thoughts it you know and i managed to site for a little bit and i i don't think i don't even i don't know if you're aware tom but the traffic you got was pretty insane where i was just like it's like you know, forty-five thousand page views per per blog post, which I was like, "That's that's a lot," you know. And I realized, like, oh, people resonate with mm. what Tom's saying. I think a part of it is Tom's very sharp. Another part of it was just like Tom was just penning what we were all already thinking or saying, but just couldn't put out there, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think it's almost like a challenge to maybe us three or even others listening that like we just have to like be able to articulate what we're thinking for these tribes to start i think as asians we just keep it close to our chest because we don't want to rock the boat or we just don't want to say it so I, I like a part of me is just like man even us doing this podcast it's it's like a very loose penning but a part of it is hopes of just like i hope we're just saying stuff that isn't crazy but you know a lot of listeners dm us like dude you're saying exactly what we've been thinking right and i'm just like yeah i hope we're, i hope we are so where are all the Asians at right now? Are they all still in their previous tribes, like PCA, TGC, MacArthur tribes, or is is it new now? I do think I do see. Um, now, granted, I mean, I'm I'm in a tribe that maybe is is different from other tribes, but um, like I I do see like less of an allegiance to like tribes. I do see that like those lines being much more blurred mm. these days, you know, and, and honestly, I just see it based on the people who come through our church. You know, it's like there are people who are worshiping with us that I'm positive five to 10 That's years true. ago would never have stepped foot into our church simply because of what they, you know, like simply because of those lines yeah. that were drawn you know but now they are you know um and for maybe it's simply yeah like um 
I, I think people are looking for just, they just want to be in a community of other believers that they can grow in, who love Jesus, who love the church, who, um, who love them. You know, um, I find that maybe what's happened in the church capital C has jaded people maybe a little bit to like just the like importance or like um, the primacy, I guess, of denominations and networks. Yeah, more than ever, right? It feels like someone, like back in our day, people would go to like a PCA church because they mm -hmm. wanted to go to a PCA church, but less of that now, huh, amongst mm -hmm. Asians. I realize even for you two, like your churches too, I think, you know, your churches are growing. I don't want to, I don't want to just like puff our churches up. But I do think a lot of it is like we everything we talked about, the preaching is felt too for the people. I think that they can tell like, oh, Jason is changing. He's like thinking about new things. Oh, Tom, definitely. Like, yeah, you know, I know your most recent sermon series, Tom. Like, I don't think you would have done that 10 years ago. And I think people like actually really like that. And I, I think that's what people are looking for, at least from what I've seen. Soon Tom's going to be teaching the Enneagram, I guarantee you. <laughs> nine, hey. nine part sermon series. <laughs> hey, if, even two years ago, Tom would be like, that's where I'm at? Like, that's <laughs> we're playing a dangerous game. Who knows where we're going to be five years from now. Hey, but, but I'll say it, man. I'll say it. Like, I think we said in that episode, uh, much rather take that risk that's and see true. where the Lord leads us versus you just play it safe and you're stuck in this box. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you feel like, and I want to be careful, like if you do that, it's kind of dooming yourself to just a slow death. I don't want to say death, but you know what I'm talking about? If you're about? stuck in the box? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I always picture people. like, it's like the book of Job is so helpful to me and the wisdom books in general. Like the book of Job, like all of his friends, they've had God like fixed in the system. Mm. And that was their big problem. Like this is how God works. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with systems. And there are things that are revealed in scripture about God that we can definitely say, yeah, that's true about who God is. Yeah. But the moment you try to put God in this box and this system and he can't get out of that box, like God tends to just rock your world. And that's where I think a lot of these people, it's just funny when they, it's not funny, but it's, it's interesting where these hardcore doctrine guys, when they go through like deep suffering, all of a sudden everything changes for them. Like yeah. their view of God just becomes expansive. They're still like their same selves, but they become way more soft. They become way more open. They're still Christian. So it's just fascinating guys. Like, you know, even like Rankin Wilborn, when, I don't know if you guys saw his blog stuff, like dude, everything changed. And I think those guys who are super systematic, it's not until God like does something to your life that I really feel like you either double down and you become even more like rigid or something happens where you open your heart and the spirit of God just like comes in and does a work in you. It's so true. And when something like that happens, you're always, I find that you're always surprised at the people who have their arms open you know, and are waiting for you. And you're like, oh, it's not, not the guys my tribe. <laughs> not the guys I thought. But I'll take anyone at this point. <laughs> yeah. Like Jason, I'm, you're, you're the you're my... <laughs> I'm your guy, Tom. Hey. Me and Tom always say Jason Min is the, the Statue of Liberty of, of pastors and churches right now. He welcomes the, the poor. He welcomes the needy. Citizens is your church if you are hurting, if you're listening to this. Okay. I, I do feel like, you know, like we, I feel like we've talked about like the dangers of social media a lot and how mm -hmm. like 
when you get stuck in an algorithm and you're just getting fed the same yes. exact talking points, yeah, yeah, how yeah. Da- damaging that is. And I don't think people understand that that's literally what it is when <laughs> you are only, you've only interacted, been in relationship with, and willing to like be friends with like people in your like theological tribe. It's, you're basically in a, like a never ending Instagram algorithm, you know, like yeah. of the same talking points. And so you start sounding, everyone's regurgitating the same exact things. And yeah. I think coming outside of that is actually a, an act of humility. It's like mm-hmm. being willing to listen to others and say like, okay, I still have these views, but I want to hear what you have to say about this, you know, and I want to be able to like humble myself and, and at even question some of the things that I believe. You know, mm-hmm. I never understood that. I never understood if you're so confident in your beliefs, why are you afraid to interact with people who believe mm-hmm. differently? Mm-hmm. At best, you will your beliefs will be sharpened. At worst, you will just double down your beliefs and just be hardened. But like your if you're so confident in it, like why are you afraid to dialogue about that issue that with people who think differently than you? That's just always bizarre to me. Mm-hmm. Or even like people who do what you don't do better. Right. So like and Tom, right. you, you mentioned this to me where you're like, I don't want, maybe I'm giving away too much, but you're doing a sermon series on prayer, right? Yes. You, you, you should share that story about like when you're going, you're reading those like crazy people and, oh, yeah. uh-huh. and then your staff. Is yeah. Like, yeah. Cause I was, so I'm not sure if I told you this to you, Jason, but we're reading, like uh, we're going through a, a, a thing on prayer and I grabbed a group of people in our church and we're reading about like, these like guys who talk about some interesting thoughts on prayers. Like when you pray long enough, like for hours, all of a sudden you have like these visions and like these raptures and locutions. It's like this like trippy stuff that they're saying. I'm like, what in the world? And you know, they're biblical in everything they're saying. Like they reference like, this is like Paul and like the second heavens and so forth. And they were like all like bashing the article and so forth. And I remember I had to push back going, dude, like how often do you guys pray? Like, do you pray anywhere close to what these guys are praying? And you know, none of them probably even like, they admittedly go, yeah, it's really hard for me to pray. I'm like, dude, so before we criticize these folks who pray for like four to five hours, let's pray as long as they do. And let's see what we see. Like, let's see what happens in our life when we're praying that long. And again, I'm not saying that they're right, but I feel like we're so quick to dismiss yes. people just because they come from a different tribe. Yes. And I feel like they're saying things that I feel like for a lot of us, we're actually weak at. So... Yeah, that was kind of a, an interesting situation I was in. Hmm. Well, it's been a while with this conversation going, and I know we can keep going. So I, I want to cap it for now. Um, I think we'll have, this will be, I mean, this always leaks on every one of our episodes, but we just kind of wanted to articulate all of this in one episode. Hope that's helpful. Maybe we can end with this really quick. Can we share one resource? It's like It could be a talk, book, a person that you think a lot of our listeners would not know like just come completely out of the circles that you feel like might be helpful um, for them to listen or for them to read. Um, people are always asking us this on DMs. So yeah, maybe we can share one resource, uh, one book, one person, one talk, and then we'll close it off from there. I know one person, I think people know, but maybe they haven't really engaged in his work that I find is really helpful is Eugene Peterson. Dude, you took mine. Oh, my bad. But dude, yeah. that's how universal he is. Like Eugene Peterson, again, when I first heard of him, the message Bible, like this weird translation, you just mm-hmm. kind of almost dismiss Eugene Peterson altogether. 
But I realized I was doing with like my prayer group. Like I never actually read him. And so I remember when someone recommended one of his books, I like read it with a very like skeptical eye. And man, did that minister to like my soul. Like Eugene yes. Peterson, you could just sense like this guy like encounters God. Mm-hmm. And you know, he thinks a little bit differently than I do. And yet there's nobody very rarely since maybe since like Keller, where I read somebody going, I want to be like this guy. And so Peterson, if he's a really good gateway drug to somebody who's a little bit different than maybe a normal reform guy that you might read if you come from that tribe. I want to be very careful when I say this person, this might get me in trouble or whatever. Um, I think Ronald Rollheiser is amazing. Um, he's, he's a Catholic. Hmm. What, what I, Tom, what is he? Like, is he just a archbishop or I, I, don't, I don't even know. He might be a Jesuit. I'm okay. not sure. Okay. So he's like in the Jesuit line. Um, but man, uh, his stuff is amazing. And, and you know, it's, it's not even, it's not his stuff on justification or anything that like, you know, is unorthodox, at least in terms of the evangelical way of salvation. But he has a blog that he's written before blogs were cool. Like I'm saying from like the 95 and he's written like every week. And in that blog is like just his musings on life and simple things like forgiveness or like parenting or anger. And you're like, dude, this dude has thought really deeply about how to live with God and in his presence. Um, Again, I wouldn't agree with everything, but everything I've read so far, which isn't, you know, dictating like justification or how you're saved has been amazing. Um, So I would carefully, I don't even say, I would just recommend him if you can. Um, And I think it will help just like your own spiritual life. That'll be a good episode to do. Like when at one point should you still read somebody? And when at one point do you have to like stop reading them? Yeah. I feel like a lot of people might wrestle with that. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. just don't say the Dalai Lama, anyone, and then we'll be like, uh, Jason, last but not least. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say Eugene Peterson. That's like the, the one that really comes to mind as the, the one that really helped me so much because I think with a lot of the other people that I read, it was almost like you were, you were almost, if it felt like, I'm not saying this, like they didn't have like an, uh, like a deep intimate relationship with God. I'm sure they did. But as you were reading them, it almost felt like you were listening to someone talk about something like that other people had talked about. But with Eugene Peterson, it was like listening to someone who had like tasted it for himself you know like you know the way he talked like he made reading the like he made me want to read scripture and he made me like fall in love with scripture again like you know um he made me want to pray like um yeah i mean it just uh there was a simplicity about his life and his his uh writing that i loved so much um another another person that if you're I mean again I don't know where who our listeners are but if you are in the same kind of if you had a similar upbringing spiritual upbringing as I did um, one um, author that really helped me a lot was actually Alan Hirsch Hmm. and um, you know like I remember reading um, I think it was like the shaping of things to come or the forgotten ways one of his books and it it helped me because he comes from a slightly different theological stream 
um, than than um, the reform tribe. Like it made me think about the church in general. Um, like it made me think about mission, like missional living in such a different way. And um, yeah, it, when you read people like that, it, it really does make you like get you to dream about what the church could look like, you know, um, at its best. And, and then again, I mentioned this earlier, but I, I'd say Scott McKnight was a big one for me. Um, you know, King Jesus gospel, um, if you want kind of a different take on, or like a different perspective on what the gospel is, um, I think he would be a great, great resource. I feel like guys like McKnight and like Amy Bird and so forth, they're like red pills. Like you gotta be ready to leave the matrix, man. True. Not, not everybody's ready. It's very true. True. Read at your own risk. Don't get in trouble, please. But um, thanks for listening. I really appreciate all of you guys who listen, especially those who somehow made us your top one podcast for this year. Uh, very thankful for that. But with that, um, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to DM us. Uh, if you could give us a rating, we really appreciate it appreciate that but thanks for listening hope you're blessed and see you in our next episode